Today's episode was recorded prior to Tuesday's election results being known. Today, we're talking about cybersecurity and healthcare. One senator wants a stockpile of medical equipment to be on hand to replace computers and other systems damaged by cyber attacks. We'll tell you who. And does daylight savings time or Christmas music have an impact on your health? We'll discuss that and some healthcare business headlines. From Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net, this is the Flatlining Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the Flatlining Podcast. The podcast brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week from flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. I'm Matthew Handley and with me is the President and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and economist Ron Howergan. Ron, welcome back to the Flatlining Podcast. Thank you very much. Always great to be with you. As I mentioned in the intro, we're going to be talking about cybersecurity and healthcare because that's made some waves in the Senate intelligence community over the last few weeks. Uh, we're also going to cover some business headlines, and I want to end on a lighter note because we're dealing with the election in uh, recent days, and I think we should talk about daylight savings time because that may be a unifying issue that uh, lots of Americans can get behind right now, um, but we'll see. Uh, Ron, I want to start with the cybersecurity and uh, healthcare, because this is something that we've talked about um, a few times here on the program. And I even mentioned in the Friday Pulse Check a few weeks ago where you had Michigan Health had four employees that fell for a phishing scam and thus 33,000 patients' personal health information was compromised. Um, the Senate Intelligence Committee put out a report last week that said that cybersecurity attacks are on the rise, particularly for healthcare, and they were up 32% in 2021 over 2020. Um, and I guess the first question that people have is, is is kind of a common sense question. Why is personal health information valuable on places like the black market or on the dark web? Or even in general, to, you know, just other state actors? Yeah, well, uh, PHI, personal health information, is valuable because it typically has two components to it. Um, one, it typically has enough components to do um, identity theft. You know, PHI will have everything, name, address, many times social security number, enough information to, you know, to open up a false credit card, et cetera. So that, that and we all know that that's valuable. The second thing is a lot of PHI information has enough information in it to create and um, submit fraudulent claims. So people can take that information about you, which will include often things like diagnosis codes, procedure codes, et cetera, and inappropriately bill Medicare or Medicaid or insurance mm -hmm. companies and have the checks come to them. So it's a wonderful sort of double scam. I can, I can create a, a, you know, a, a new you and create a credit card for you. Um, and I can also bill Medicare for services you never received and try to get those checks mm -hmm. as well. And I guess I should point out, too, that with the Michigan Health thing, they did point out that only one Social Security number was breached, but mm -hmm. in most of the information that was breached was that private, you know, diagnosis um, and treatment plan information that, would be, that was being traded between the hospital emails. On the dark web, according to the report from the Senate Intelligence Committee, some of these records sell from as little as ten dollars to $1,000, which surprised me on the $1,000 round that you'd be paying, you know, if you took, if you someone sold all of the information that was at 
Michigan Health for a thousand dollars piece. That's that's a large chunk of money for someone, but it makes sense if they can sit there and improperly bill Medicare or Medicaid or perhaps even some of the insurance companies. Right, exactly. That's where the big payoff and those big records come from is those chronically ill people that they know they can start submitting claims in through Medicare or through an insurance company mm-hmm. and get payment on those. Now, one way that we've tried to protect personal health information in this country is with the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA. What was the original purpose of HIPAA? Because this came out in 1996, largely before we've, you know, the internet was was very popular, um, and people had much easier access now to personal health information than they would have then. So, well, I'll tell you what the stated goal of it was, and I'll tell you my own opinion of the All right. of the law. So, the stated goal was to protect people's confidential clinical or or healthcare information. You know, is to say, well, we don't want people running around saying, hey, you know, I work at a doctor's office and, you know, do you know Bob, our neighbor, he has this disease or, um, you know, people being very loose or flippant with that data and somebody else finds out. And and I'll take the, you know, this is a historic example, but, you know, when the HIV crisis happened, people were very concerned about knowing whether or not I had HIV because that might let somebody know I'm gay or, mm-hmm. or you know, participate in unhealthy you know, needle swapping or whatever. So a lot of this is very sensitive information. And so the act was originally designed to try to protect that information from being, you know, um, loosely guarded amongst medical practices. Now, my own personal opinion is, and most people who, who sort of work inside healthcare will say this, is it was a government solution to a non-problem. That that information was not being just thrown around willy-nilly by physician offices um, and that there really wasn't this big huge problem of people randomly finding out your your clinical information and that it created an awful lot of cost and work to protect something that really wasn't being done to begin with mm-hmm. can HIPAA be used now in in when we talk about some of these cybersecurity threats in what ways do you think it can be used now well, it, it could be used in that if they started making changes to HIPAA to um, strengthen the requirements for digital security, you know, that would be a way to take an existing law and add provisions to it that said, oh, okay, in addition to doing the following, uh, you know, things that the law already does, doctors now have to start to have certain amounts of protection on their computer systems. Mm-hmm. They, could, they could create standards or requirements for that protection that are in, in much greater than they are today. Um, one thing that the Senate Intelligence Committee pointed out uh, was that the healthcare sector has been uniquely vulnerable to cyber attacks. And I, and I don't know of a comparison of whether or not it's greater than other sectors or not. Um, I haven't seen any reports on anything like that. But it does seem that occasionally we are seeing pop-ups of certain hospital systems were attacked by either um, Trojan horses or through phishing scams. Um, is there... Something that the the healthcare could be do the healthcare quote unquote healthcare the as as a whole could be doing um, to better protect themselves against certain phishing scams and things like that. Well, I mean, absolutely. You know, any any system, any computer system, um, can definitely be made more secure. And I think that's a legitimate criticism to say in general, healthcare hasn't been the most secure environment. Um, it's not as secure as let's say banking which Mm -hmm. has gone to greater lengths to make security an issue for obvious reasons, or many of the government 
you know, systems or, or things like that. So sure, it could absolutely be more secure. Now it gets down to, but what's it cost? Right. Um, versus what are the current um, attacks costing? Mm-hmm. And you also have to understand there's two potential issues when you're thinking about cybersecurity. One is the financial attack, the denial of service, mm-hmm. the Trojan horse stuff, where somebody from another country says, hey, I just, I just froze your system. I have the key that will unlock your system to let you come back to work. Send me $35,000 in Bitcoin and I will give you the key. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting part about, and, and healthcare is getting those attacks, both hospitals and, and physic, large physician groups, et cetera. Right. And the interesting part about that is most people who are in the cybersecurity arena, um, when you tell them, hey, I just got my, a denial of service attack and, and somebody's holding a key to my system, we'll tell you, pay the money. Right. It's cheaper. Mm-hmm. And a lot of hospitals, most hospitals and most physician practices have insurance over that. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't even cost anything. So that's one attack. Now that question becomes, well, what's cheaper? Making it so secure that can't happen at a f- pretty high expense or just mm-hmm. every now and then when you get attacked, you know, pay it. The second kind of cyber attack would be more of a um, national security risk, you know, foreign country trying to do serious damage. Mm-hmm. Um now, in that perspective, I would argue that healthcare is maybe more secure than a number of other things. And I'll use the, um, you know, the, the grid, the electrical grid, mm-hmm. power grid. Okay. Reason being that healthcare is incredibly decentralized. You True. know, they're not yes. all on one system. You know, if you wanted to do damage and shut down the hospital delivery capability in this country, okay, there are over 6,000 hospitals in this country. And they're not all on the same system. Mm-hmm. So you'd have to attack, you know, thousands of different at the same time, which is difficult. Now, you want to drop the power grid, there are central, since it's all connected, um, there are central points where you could do that, would, which would create huge problems. Um, similar to, you know, attacking, um, you know, airports. Um, you know, if you attacked Atlanta, Chicago, LA, Dallas, mm-hmm. New York, boy, you, you could, you could wreak havoc. So, um, you know, is healthcare vulnerable to the kind of financial attacks? Absolutely. Um, if you mandated a lot of security there, you'd also add an awful lot of costs that had to be paid somewhere. Right. No, that, that makes total sense. Uh, the chairman of the Senate intelligence committee, Mark Warner, a Democrat from Virginia, he, he put out a policy paper after this report came out. Um, and he wanted to update HIPAA to allow for, HHS to work with the private sector to identify and defend against cyber attacks in healthcare research and development. Um, how how do you think something like that? What kind of public-private partnership do you think there could be there between HHS and the private sector? Because I'm assuming what he means by that is the private sector being cybersecurity and not necessarily healthcare. Um, but I'm just curious what you think that might look like. Well, the first thing that when I when I personally when I see what Senator Warner wrote and and, and I, I don't dispute his intentions, but is it strikes me that old saying, I'm from the government, I'm here to help, which is the right. greatest oxymoron ever mm-hmm. mentioned. Because what that will probably look like is HHS prescribing the follow thing following things must happen. Um, private right. sector meaning companies filling the void saying we can make them happen. And then hospitals and medical groups paying for it to happen, you know, and that money has to come from somewhere. So, yes. and, and that 
prescription hasn't worked real well in a lot of areas in the past. So that makes me very nervous. Now, personally, I think a much better use of government intervention in this area would be to have HHS come in and say, look, um, and they could use the carrot and the stick. It, you know, we want we want systems to talk to each other. All these EMRs and hospital mm -hmm. systems to share clinical data immediately. Okay, in the same format, so that when I'm in a in an emergency room in another state, that ER doctor can see my chart and everything that happened to me in hospitals in my state. Okay, that would be huge mm -hmm. and would save an awful lot of money and be clinically much better. So HHS could say, well, we want everybody to do this. And if you do it, here's your 1% Medicare bonus. And if you don't, here's a 1% Medicare penalty. And it would happen. Mm -hmm. To me, that's a much better use of sort of pushing computer things than you know trying to make something a whole lot more secure where we would probably spend $10 for every $2 of, of you know payments that we eliminate. And, and I would generally agree with something like that because it would make things efficient. But yeah. we both know that that's not the government's uh, strong suit uh, is efficiency. No. One of the other things he called for, and you can tell me whether or not that this is another I'm from the government and I'm here to help thing, was he wanted a national stockpile of commonly used medical equipment to replace products that get compromised or damaged in a cyber attack. Now, outside of computer systems, I'm not really sure what he would be referring to here. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, so this one really baffled me from a couple of reasons. First of all, remember, the monetary attacks aren't damaging any equipment. Mm -hmm. That's actually not in their best interest because what they want to do is they want to be so um, innocuous that it, you, they just get paid. They're not trying to hurt him, but they're just trying to get money. Mm -hmm. So if I go into somebody's system and I start damaging a bunch of medical equipment, well, then I'm really not going to get paid. Right. I want to. I want you to send me the thirty thousand in Bitcoin so I can give you your key back and be done. Um, and then the the sort of the attack that is a you know a foreign nation trying to do real damage. Again, I don't think they're going to attack healthcare because it's decentralized. And a lot of this sort of what we think of as standard medical equipment isn't really connected to systems or networks anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if you're talking about heart monitors and that kind of thing. You know that's not really something that would get damaged so i don't know why we would want to stockpile that stuff when that doesn't seem to be a huge risk to me mm -hmm. and it becomes outdated so quickly this isn't like right you know stockpiling a bunch of car tires i mean the technology in car tires hasn't changed that much in the last 20 years you stockpile certain pieces of medical equipment in two years it's worthless because it's been all at one change so i don't really understand that one um, to be and, honest with you. And even if you stockpile computers, because I've worked with, with, you know, usually nonprofit groups, but some groups before where they said, oh, we've got plenty of extra computers and they pull it out and it's a Windows XP computer right. from 2005, you know, which is essentially worthless in, in this day and well, age. And, and when you look at inside hospitals or medical groups, the people who are, are pecking away at that keyboard aren't working on a computer. It's just a terminal. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a monitor in a, in a keyboard tied to a computer somewhere else. So, yeah. you know, would you stockpile a whole mainframe for a hospital? No. Yeah. You know, so anyways, I, that one really baffled me. I don't get where he's coming up with that one. Well, we want to hear about your opinion on this. Uh, we'll post uh, Senator Warner's policy paper as well as uh, the roll call article about from the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee about this issue. You can tweet me. I'm at Radio Handley. Ron is at Ron Howardin on Twitter. Uh, I don't think you've left yet because of Elon Musk, have you? 
I have not. I have well, not. No, I'm not paying my eight bucks, so I'm yeah. not there yet. But you know, we're not um, verified. Yeah, I'm not verified, so I don't get the eight bucks a month. But uh, no, I'm still on Twitter. But if that's the radio handle you put in, you'll find us there on Twitter. You can also email us at flatlining at substack.com. One thing we've noticed from listeners of the Flatlining Podcast is that not all of you have signed up for our weekly e-newsletter. You can do so now at flatlining.net. Each week, we share some of the most interesting and relevant healthcare news-related items we find and how they might affect you, your practice, or your patients. It also includes a weekly column from me. Sign up now for the Friday Pulse Check at flatlining.net. turn to some business uh, headlines now, Ron. And one of the stories I came across this week from Becker's Hospital Review was about Walgreens, um, what, their primary care answer. Uh, and one of the things that they were doing, one of the groups that they own is called Village MD. And they announced this week that they had purchased the physician practice group Summit Health for about $8.9 billion. Um, now, Becker's labeled Village as a primary care disruptor. And I'm curious what they would mean by something called a primary care disruptor. So, I, th- you know, what they're really talking about is, um, and there's a number of entities out there that are sort of doing this, that are calling themselves healthcare disruptors or primary care disruptors. And it's very similar to the idea of what, you know, let's say Amazon did to malls. You know, where uh, the old system was, I went to one place that had 50 stores or 25 stores, and I walked around and I did my shopping of everything from, you know, tennis shoes to, to sneakers or to clothes to you know, whatever. Okay. And then Amazon came along and said, hey, you don't have to go to the mall. I'll bring you the mall to your computer, and I'll bring you even more stores, and I'll do free shipping, and I'll make it cheaper. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the, these... Healthcare disruptors are saying, well, no, you don't have to drive to your primary care office and sit there and wait six weeks for your appointment and then wait for an hour when you're in there for the doctor to see you and all that's all inefficient. That's the old, I went to the mall and shopped thing. No, what we're going to do is create these little locations or where it's more urgent care based. It's more, you know, on demand kind of thing, quick appointments today or tomorrow or urgent care. A lot of it's going to be telemedicine. It's all going to be, and, and, you know, we're going to provide a much more consumer-friendly, quicker, easier, faster approach to healthcare, and that might be centered even 
oh, I don't know, in a pharmacy itself. So you don't even have mm-hmm. to drive to the pharmacy. On the way out, you get your prescription. And there might be all these other things available and all this other. So it's it's that kind of sort of consumer market disruption. Now, part of that is driven by they can do it, they think, better, cheaper, faster. Part of that's being driven by, you know, you've got millennials now who are aging into the healthcare consumer phase. You know, some of them call, some people call them digital natives, and mm-hmm. they're used to doing things differently. You know, um, they don't remember malls. You know, they, they've only remember Amazon. Right. So um, that's what it means to be the disruptor. Now, the big question there is, while that may be more of what the consumer wants, is it better healthcare? Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And do we lose something, you know, on that, the primary care physician who knows you and, and you know, is working with you on all of your health issues? Well, we probably lose some of that. Um, we lost the, you know, the personal service of going into the, you know, the corner drugstore and having the, the, you know, the pharmacist know you and your family. Mm-hmm. So, but that's what they're really, it's a whole new model of providing health care that's much more, um, on-demand, consumer-friendly, and much less um, of the ilk of the long-term patient-physician relationship. Well, well let's talk about um, how that'll affect healthcare, and we'll put it into our equation of quality access and affordability. I, I think it would be, um, well, I don't know if I would say that it would necessarily increase or decrease access, because Summit Health owns uh, City MD, which is the urgent care uh, chain that they purchased, which has... 370 urgent cares across New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, and Oregon. Um, And just because it's bought by Walgreens and now it's owned by a different company, it's not necessarily going to, they're not necessarily going to take those locations away. Um, Although I suppose you could see them move into Walgreens stores instead. Um, But how do you think that this will affect access? Well, the the grand plan for these kind of providers is that that will eventually significantly improve access because sort of the model of these are um, smaller locations. You know, if you think about, if you've ever walked into one of the drugstores, whether it's CVS or whatever, that has the little, you know, primary care delivery um, locations, they're very small in nature, Um, Mm -hmm. but then there's going to be more of them. You know, so the idea is to have these be much, um, much larger in numbers of locations, but not the big medical building that we're all used to. Um, and that, that they think that improves access. They also believe they improve access by having, you know, more real time or, or next day appointment kind of availability in addition to urgent care. So you don't wake up with a sinus infection and go, well, I'll see you a week from Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, so the drive is to try to improve access to care. And I think to a large degree, they'll be successful in doing that to the extent it, it it gains traction. What about quality? Because as you were talking, I, I thought that this might actually solve the problem that we talked about before with the electronic records. Whereas if you go into a, you know, a minute clinic at CVS, or if you mm-hmm. go into one of these care centers owned by uh, Walgreens or Amazon or whoever owns it, if you're consistently going to the same brand and store, regardless of what state you're in, similar to how prescriptions are done now, you yeah. could, in theory, have all your records in one place. Well, and this one's going to be a bit of a mixed bag, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and the net, whether it'll be a, a positive or negative to quality, is I think remains to be seen. So, yeah, to the extent that if I start getting all my care at a minute clinic, that they all have the same EMR and they're all interconnected, um, then, yeah, that's, that's, that's an improvement. Um, to the extent that I might be getting care quicker than I otherwise would in the old system, and maybe that helps to avoid, you know, 
that sinus infection getting much worse, that, that could potentially be an increase in quality of care. Now, the detractors of it point to that these models are driven on very sort of limited physician-patient interaction. It's quick. Mm -hmm. You know, it's what it's designed to be, and do we miss things there? Um, they also point to the fact that a lot of these clinics are more heavily staffed at a uh, at a mid level, and I'm not I'm not detracting from the capabilities of nurse practitioners or uh, you know FNPs or PAs or NPs, um, but you know there's a question about what if they start seeing things that maybe they shouldn't see? Do they miss things? You know they they didn't have the same training as an MD. Um, and so those are questions on whether there's sort of a detraction of quality there. Um, so it, it, and is there some value to a long-term relationship between, you know, primary care provider and patient, or are these just going to be all transactional things? When I go in and say, doc, I feel like this, is there some value of that doctor going, well, Ron, I know you've other had this other problem or, so I don't want to prescribe this mm -hmm. because of this, um, uh, you know, um, a, a perfect example, I, you know, I, and I'll, I'll tell this on myself. Um, a while ago, I was diagnosed with Meniere's disease, and the, the ENT that treated me and did a wonderful job of helping me with my symptoms, put me on a diuretic um, and potassium. Now, I didn't know that diuretics cause your body to waste potassium, so you can get very low potassium levels. So he put me on a diuretic and then a supplemental potassium pill. So I went and saw my internal medicine doctor who knows me very well, knows my history, and said, man, I don't like this. So why? And he goes, well, you know, I see what he's doing, and that's that's helpful for the Meniere's disease, but these potassium bills are going to be hell on your intestines. So I'd like to get rid of those. So let me play around with this a bit, and let me, um, you know, let me cut your diuretic in half, and then stop taking the potassium pills, but instead try to eat a banana every day. And then he followed up with a lab test, and a lab test, and you know, in 60 days or so, and actually less than that, said, okay, now your potassium levels are good. You're taking half the diuretic. And you're, you know, you're not taking those pills, which are bad. And you're taking, so his knowledge of my situation and the rest of my lab tests helped him really work, sort of almost in concert with the ENT to get me right where I needed to be. Mm -hmm. Now, in this model, do I lose that because that person is going to know that and probably is going to take the time to to deal with that other stuff? So, it's a mixed bag of whether it'll be a pro or con to quality. Right. I think personally that. This type of model can work very well for people who are generally younger and healthier, and that as people get older or have other chronic issues or, or larger disease states, that they really shouldn't be in this kind of model. They should be more in the old school model where they're seeing a, the same physician every six months um, to handle those chronic or more severe situations. It's my own personal opinion. No, and I would generally agree with. I was having the I was having the same thought right as you started talking about it, about you know having a personal relationship with your um, physician, with your doctor, uh, and and the value. And th in my opinion, I agree with you. The value that you get beyond that outweighs the you know the inconvenience of having to drive a little bit further or make an appointment a little bit further in advance for something that isn't an urgent issue. The last part of our equation was affordability, and I'm assuming that. With people that are on commercial insurance, that they're really not going to see any sort of price difference between seeing a primary care doctor at a CVS or a Walgreens compared to a family medicine doctor at a at a private clinic. Um, if they're on a sort of what we think of as a standard commercial plan where they just pay a copay, right? 
for, then they, they won't see any difference. Their yeah. employer might see a difference in total cost. Um, you know, if they're on, you know, more of a cash pay kind of environment or don't have insurance, they could see a significant reduction in cost. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, then it, it could be more affordable for some people. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that this, these kind of disruptor models are looking for is to try to prove that they are lower total cost. Um, and they can, you know, and part of that is they'll accept less money for each office visit than maybe a standard physician's office would. And if they can prove that to try to go to the self-funded employers and say, you should create benefits where it's free to come to us and it's $10 to go to a, mm -hmm. you know, a, the kind of the old school model or something like that. And that hasn't been done widely yet, but that's part of what they're pushing for. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll have this link to the Becker's article uh, in the show notes for today's program. The other business item I wanted to talk about around is the American Hospital Association uh, this week. The president and CEO wrote a letter to HHS Secretary Javier Becerra and Labor Secretary Martin Walsh um, talking about unaffordable deductibles and excessive requirements for prior authorization. How much of uh, his complaints to the Labor Secretary and the HHS Secretary are new and how much can they actually address these issues? Um, I'm glad you, you, you used the word new. Um, how much of this is new? None of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, this game's been going on for a long time. You know, um, prior authorizations, you know, referrals, um, utilization management, um, you know, all that stuff, and, you know, and the making deductibles higher and coinsurance is higher. I mean, this is nothing new. I mean, you know, I started in healthcare 36 years ago with the, you know, the first HMO here in North Carolina, Kaiser Permanente. And we had a whole utilization management department. I mean, what people forget about is when I was working for, for Kaiser, and this was, everybody was doing this. A lot of the insurance companies were doing this. You know, utilization, one of the things in utilization management was the one day stay for a delivery. You know, women who had a normal vaginal birth and didn't have a problem went into the hospital on a Friday morning, delivered Friday afternoon and went home Saturday. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, that was part of utilization management. Now that's really gone by the wayside because they realize there's some potential concerns for the baby and everything. But um, so none of this is new. It's been going on for a long time. Now, what can HHS do about it? Well, a lot of that will depend on the results of the midterm elections, which are happening today. I know this will drop tomorrow after it's over, but um, you know, the government can do a lot if they've got the the votes to do it. And so in order for Becerra to really do much of anything about this for insurance companies, um, it'd have to be legislation that happened and you know, you'd have to have the Democrats controlling, you know, the House, the Senate with bigger majorities and, and obviously administration. Um, as far as without that, you know, HHS has very little that they can do to insurance companies. They're not the regulator for them. Um, so this is, you know, in my opinion, these are real issues, but somebody's shouting at the wind here because nothing's going to happen with it. So, and I'm being a little facetious here. You're telling me that HHS can't just write up a new rule to replace the the laws that are already on the books? Well, the last time they tried to do that was <laughs> sort of with the No Surprises Act, and a federal court slapped them around pretty good about that. So, yeah. no, they, they as much as I think they'd want to, they can't. There's this whole checks and balances system that we have in our government that works pretty well when the, when the court's you know, sort of slapped Becerra the last time he tried to make new law by himself. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, the 
president of the American Hospital Association also addressed a letter to, like I said, Martin Walsh from the Labor Department. And I guess I'm a little bit curious um, what the AHA thinks the Labor Department could do in this instance. Well, I don't – so I don't think the the – Hospital Association thinks that either of these people can do anything about it. I really don't. I think this is a little bit like, um, well, it's a little bit like, so um, I, I saw an interview one time with, with Coach K, the former Duke basketball coach. Mm-hmm. And, and the guy was asking him, you know, when he argues a call, and he said, you know, Coach, you get really upset at refs, and your face turns red, and you're screaming at him about a call. Have you ever had a call overturned? He said, no, never. And they said, why do you do it? And he said, it's not about the last call. It's about the next one. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get the next call. So I think what they're doing with both of these is they know they can't really do anything about it. They're trying to get that next thing. And that mm-hmm. may be you know, some improvement in reimbursement for hospitals under Medicare, some change in you know, regulation on how hospitals are, are dealt with by the Department of Labor, something like that. So Again, you know, the individual wrote this letter smart enough to know that even if they wanted to, you know, Becerra and Walsh can't do a damn thing really about this issue, but they could help them somewhere else. And I think mm-hmm. that's really what they're doing. Now, the, the only political question I really had for this is that, you know, say, um, and I know I'm going out of limb because I'm speaking, this is coming out, like you said, after the, yeah. uh, we know the results from the election. Um, which we don't know at the time that we're recording this, but say the Democrats have an overwhelming majority, um, or in fact, hey, even say the Republicans have an overwhelming majority and then they win the White House in, in 2024. It doesn't really matter which party it is. But if you had a party respond to this and pass some regulation on these insurance companies about um, deductibles, co-pays, um, clamping down on on prior authorizations, do you think that could be a real political win for whichever party manages to get that done first? Because that's unlike the Inflation Reduction Act. That's something that people would be seeing um, literally going into their wallet by seeing their premiums come down. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the political win about hammering insurance companies is definitely there um, because they're not well liked. You know, I mean, it's it's. Mm-mm. You know, it's a little bit like kicking a tobacco company. I mean, they, you know, there's, they're, they're, they're not really highly liked by almost anybody other than their investors and their shareholders who love them and rightfully should because they return massive returns. Now, the problem is they're also a massive lobbying entity. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're now highly intertwined with governmental budgets. You know, there's been some studies that some of these insurance companies now are receiving up to 70% of their revenue from a government entity. That's Medicare, Medicaid, and remember that there's a fair amount of commercial insurance that's highly subsidized under the Affordable Care Act, and those are government subsidies. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they also, the insurance companies they wanted to, could do some damage. So let's let's paint the picture that, let's say we wake up tomorrow morning and Democrats uh, miraculously improved their margin in the House and picked up three Senate seats. So now they've got a really strong majority in both the House, the Senate, and they control the White House. And they said, that's it. Now we're fair game, you know, Javier, have at her, you know, go after these damn insurance companies. 
Okay. Well, what would happen if the insurance companies, largely Blue Cross, but there's some others involved, said, then I'm out of the Affordable Care Act. I'm out. Mm -hmm. I'm just not going to offer it in January. Now you've got this whole Obamacare plan with nobody who's offering the insurance. And legally, they don't have to offer it. Mm -hmm. They've been doing it for political reasons. So, you know, there's a little bit of quid pro quo in Armageddon going on there to where, you know, don't hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. So that's what I mean by they're an incredibly powerful lobby, um, and they can do some damage to whichever party is in power, depending on how you deal with them. Right. Well, we'll have the links to that as well, the AHA letter, uh, in the show notes at flatlining.net. Now, I want to talk about as our last thing, something a little bit lighthearted and something that, um, you, you know, it's something that's a little bit of a political issue, but it passed a rare, it was a magical unicorn that happened uh, earlier this year where the Senate actually unanimously voted to get rid of daylight savings time, or rather they unanimously voted to stay on daylight savings time permanently, and then it fell apart in the House as things are wont to do. And I guess I want to start by um, pointing out the there's someone that talked about one time, and I believe it was a Native American. It was early on when he was introduced to the idea of daylight savings time. And he said, only human beings could be so stupid to cut the top part of a quilt off and sew it to the bottom and call it a longer quilt. And that's a bit about how daylight, I mean, that's that's basically how daylight savings time is. We've decided we're going to put the daylight at the top and move it from the bottom and say the day's longer. So, there is a movement to get rid of daylight savings time. And I guess by starting, Ron, I just want to know what your opinion is. Do you like having the 25-hour day in the fall and the 23-hour day in the spring? Or do you really care at all? Or do you think that this is something that you know we should absolutely be fighting to get rid of? Well, if nothing more than for my dogs, I want to get rid of it. Because they got really <laughs> confused when I didn't get up at the time that they normally think is breakfast time. Right. Um, you know, this weekend. So, uh, you know, this is one of those things where I, I sort of understand why it was done years and years ago. But really, I mean, other than the fact that it annoys the crap out of me to change the non-internet tied clocks, like in my right. stove or whatever, mm-hmm. um, twice a year. Yeah, I'd be perfectly fine getting rid of it. But it also makes me wonder if we can't in DC agree at least on this, what on earth are we ever going to get bipartisan support on? <laughs> right. Well, and that's why I I mentioned that it was the magical unicorn that it passed unanimously in the Senate. Now, if it were me, I wouldn't be advocating to stay permanently on daylight savings time because then we're permanently on an altered thing, which doesn't make any sense to me. I would say you'd be permanently off daylight savings time. Um, But it was interesting that they had that. Now, Europe in many places still has daylight savings time. Um, I know that... Um, Arizona is the only continental state, I believe, unless Florida recently joined that, because I know Florida discussed it too. Um, 
Arizona is the only continental state that does not have daylight savings time. Alaska and Hawaii don't as well. And I was curious as I was thinking about how we might be able to tie this into healthcare. And I actually came across that there, there has been a, a few studies on this. And the American Academy of Sleep Medicine actually points out that uh, it is better for sleep cycles to get rid of daylight savings mm-hmm. time. Um, why I, I think this might be kind of obvious, but why don't you explain a little bit as to why that is? Well, it's 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 sort of like um, the same reason why the American why, why sleep doctors will talk to you about the the dangers of jet lag, mm-hmm. or the dangers of you know like I, I've talked to a lot of sleep doctors who say it's okay to work third shift if you're a shift worker, just switching from third to second or from third to first or whatever. That's what really destroys people is messing with those circadian rhythms. So, it you know daylight savings time is in essence a screwing around with the body's internal clock twice a year for no good reason. Now, granted, it's an only an hour, so it's not as bad as a, you know, a 10-hour jet lag or whatever, but it's that exact same thing is leave the body alone. Why are we messing with it? Mm-hmm. Now, the Washington Post has an interesting little, and I'm, I'm playing it with it now as we're talking about it, a, a little scrolling kind of slideshow thing, one of those kind of whiteboard sketch things, uh, trying to explain why daylight savings time is worse. One of the things I found interesting, though, is I, I came across this in um, uh, PubMed.gov, which you know publishes a lot of the, the stuff from the NIH and, and some of these other governmental health organizations. And they actually did a study. And of course, I know we've warned before about just reading the abstract and, and not digging deeper. But the abstract of the study points out that there are measurable effects associated with the daylight savings time time shift. Um, and they point out that it's beneficial for energy conservation, but there's a reported increase to the risk of cerebrovascular and cardiovascular problems. I'm going to assume that this is sort of like the COVID vaccines, and it's going to be not a whole lot of people have to deal with this, but that it's something maybe to take note of. Yeah, and one of the things that that is difficult, and, and I've got a very good friend of mine who's a, who's a sleep doctor, a neurologist with, with training in sleep is we know there are an awful lot of things that are highly correlated to bad sleep or to disrupted sleep cycles. Things that we don't fully understand why they're correlated. Mm-hmm. You know, and we know there, but they, we know there's a very strong correlation between, you know, um, healthy sleep cycles and, and better outcomes or better disease states and a number of other things. We don't, we don't fully understand, but that's purely because we don't fully understand how the brain works. There's a mm-hmm. lot of there that we don't get. Right. So it's one of those things where it's not surprising. Um, we don't fully understand it. Um, we think there's causality there, but we can't really prove it because there's strong correlation. And then I get back to, well, if there are the, all these reasons to potentially get rid of it, and I don't hear anybody standing up with wonderful reasons to do it, to keep it, then why are we, you know, why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I and I think actually that the people that, that generally are lobbying hard to keep it are are usually those in the in the farming communities, in the farming lobby. I think those are generally your groups that are that are really pushing to keep it. But you know maybe this is something where rather than writing a HHS or or labor, the American Hospital Association or maybe the American Heart Association needs to step up and start lobbying to get rid of daylight savings time. Well, and, and yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and the funny thing about the farming community, I'm not trying to cast dispersions there. My grandfather, no. you know, uh, after his retirement, grew sweet corn mm-hmm. in, in Michigan. And, and it was sort of a hobby thing for him to do. And he sold it and everything. And, you know, it, it, he was a farmer. 
And I remember asking him one time about daylight savings time. He said, I don't care. I get up when the sun gets up. I go to bed when it goes down. I don't know what time it is. I was like, yeah, okay. He's like, who's Mm going to stop me? You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, all right, I guess so. I get it, you know. So I I guess the last interesting point, too, of just even from an international perspective, um, Europe's daylight savings time schedule is different from the U.S.'s. So there's about a week every year where, you know, east coast of the u.s is five hours behind london but there's about a week every year where it's four hours behind and then there's another week of the year where it's six hours behind right. depending on where they are in their daylight savings time schedule because they're at a different um point than than we are i guess uh i mean do you have any other hot takes on daylight savings time just to, to close out the program here on a on a high note like I said, if if we can't solve one of these problems, how are we going to solve the really dif- difficult ones? So, uh, yeah, <laughs> no, I I agree. Yeah, I agree. I I think we can leave it there. Uh, and I'll remind people that if you want to um, hear about the election, because obviously we didn't talk about it today, because we don't know what the results are yet, uh, check out the Friday Pulse Check this week, and I'm sure we'll have something to say about it next week on the Flatlining Podcast. Ron, thanks for joining us again today. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. Always enjoy it. Now, we mentioned in that last segment that daylight savings time may have some effect on your everyday health, potentially even cardiovascular issues. But what about another November staple? I'm talking about Christmas music. Now, I first heard SiriusXM promoting their Christmas channels on November 1st, but I also know that Dollar General and Lowe's and Home Depot and many other big retail chains had their Christmas displays out in mid-October. One psychologist says that the so-called Christmas creep could have a negative impact on your mental health. Now, full disclosure, this is one psychologist, and I'm unaware of any placebo-based and double-blinded studies on this matter, Uh, but if you know one of any, please send them my way. I'd like to see them. So take this report with, with some salt. But Dr. Linda Blair says that Christmas music is likely to irritate people if it's played too loudly and too early. She also said that it might make us feel like we're trapped because it's a reminder that we have to buy presents, cater for people, and organize celebrations. Some people will react to this by making impulse purchases, which of course retailers like, hence the Christmas creep. But others might just walk out of the shop, and that is a risk that a lot of retailers have to take. Now, I'd be curious to hear what your opinion on this is. Do you think Christmas music before Thanksgiving is appropriate or completely inappropriate and should be made illegal by the next Congress? Uh, if so, send me a tweet, and I'm at Radio Handley on Twitter. Be sure to check out the Friday Pulse Check this week as I break down how yesterday's election could have an impact on our health care in the near future. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Ron Harrigan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week. <laughs>